Well, good afternoon. It's good to be together today and to sing those wonderful hymns together, lifting up our voices in song. We will be continuing in the book of Hebrews. This is God's inspired word. It is uh, instructive for us, uh, for training in righteousness, for reproof and correction. And so I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're nearing the end of this glorious book. Our expositions have taken us two and a half years with a few little breaks here and there, but um, today we'll be looking at 13, verse 20 and 21. The title of the message is A Glorious Benediction, and it really is a glorious benediction. It's a model prayer also for public and private. Let me just read it for us. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon has said of this that every word is a pearl for value and as the sea for depth. And it is, it's a deep, dense portion of Holy Scripture. So let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we do ask that you would go before us, help us, O oh God, as we uh, seek to unpack the truths that are contained here. May our hearts be encouraged, even as the writer, the author to the Hebrews wanted to encourage his hearers, uh, Lord. And so we pray that we would benefit. Lord, help us to be um, undistracted, that we might come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the previous section that we looked at, verses 17 to 19, had the idea of obeying our leaders and submitting to them, a very important uh, theme throughout the Bible, really. Uh, God has put leaders over us, and we are to submit to them. But biblical leaders is far different than a CEO type of, you know, CEO of a, a corporation of some sort. Biblical leaders are appointed by Christ, and they have one goal in mind, and what is that? Is to fulfill what Christ's will is in his church. He is the, uh, the, senior, the, the senior pastor, as it were. And the church is not a democracy, it's actually a monarchy under the headship of Christ. And so pastors are appointed, and it's a weighty task because they watch over the souls and they will give an account. And so it's important that pastors lead and feed and nourish and protect from error and to pray for and to care for and disciple and to counsel and sometimes, yes, even discipline, right? But these are the things in which God has set forth for us as a church and to have a well-ordered church. Well, as we come to our text today, this functions really as a formal conclusion to a glorious letter um, that really is a sermon, and we'll see next time as a brief word of exhortation, the writer, what the writer says in verse 22, um, that you bear with this word of exhortation, for I've only written to you briefly. <laughs> so, you know, and it's dense. Some have commented that it's the most beautiful benediction or prayer ever uttered by a child of God. It's also closely connected with that previous passage where it says, remember verse 18, pray for us. 
And so as he has asked for prayer, now the author is actually giving them praise and really petitioning God on their behalf to, that they would be equipped to fulfill his will. And, and everything that's in these two verses has already been touched on previously in the letter. So it's carefully crafted. It's woven very delicately to pick up all of those themes and even words that we've already expounded upon. He weaves them all together like a beautiful tapestry. So we're going to look at this under three points. Uh, The first half of verse 20, the God of peace brought up Jesus from the dead. The second half, God has kept his promise by establishing the new covenant by his blood, by Christ's blood. And then um, thirdly, verse 21, may the Lord equip all of us to do good. So let's look first here uh, and under this first head, the God of peace brought up Jesus from the dead. We have to ask the word, what is a benediction, right? We don't usually use that terminology. And, you know, maybe if you're in, your, in church, you, you've heard this particular one from those of us that lead worship from time to time, right? But a benediction is a good word, okay? Um, some just think that, you know, that it's, it's kind of the, the last thing the, the preacher does, and so it's kind of like the the Bugs Bunny cartoons where, that's all, folks. Hey, we've come to the end. Some of you might be waiting for the benediction already right now. <laughs> You're like, we've been here long enough, maybe. Um, no, a benediction is a prayer to God on behalf of others, right? It's pronouncing a blessing, right? In fact, um, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, commonly referred to as ISBE, it says this, from the Eastern From the earliest times, the records bear testimony that pronouncing the benediction or giving a blessing was common practice. In the temple service, this duty was assigned to the Aaronites and was made an impressive part of the service. In the form of this benediction, God had given back in Numbers chapter 6. So turn with me back there, Numbers chapter 6. I almost picked this for the scripture reading, but it's so short... Maybe I should have picked it for the scripture reading. Number six, we have this beautiful benediction. You're all familiar with it in verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, and thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. So there you have the Old Testament prescribed very clearly, even the words right from the Lord through the mouth of Moses to all of the priests, right? This is the blessing that you are to pronounce upon the sons of Israel. Some of the commentators have gone so far to say that that's the Old Testament model, and the text before us is the New Testament model. But there are several benedictions throughout the the, the Bible. In the New Testament, we have several apostolic benedictions. Peter gives them, Paul gives them, and in his letters as well, um, there's a considerable variety. Some mention all three persons of the Holy Trinity, others do not. In fact, our last men's study, we dug into one of these benedictions, as I unpacked 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Just listen to this. Now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I kind of want to go back and teach this one again now, but I mean, it's so good, a God of peace, right? We have that even in our text here. And, and the idea that we would be sanctified and our whole body complete, and then that we would be found blameless at the coming of the Lord. Isn't that a blessing upon you? I want to be found blameless at the coming of the Lord. And that's what Paul does throughout 1 Thessalonians, five references to the parousia, the, the coming of Christ. You have an awesome Trinitarian one, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, how does a benediction fit into our service in the new covenant? And in our, even our church, you look in the bulletin, you have the order of service there, a roadmap in case you get lost. Well, First of all, we can only do that which is prescribed. It's called the regular principle of worship. Okay? If it's commanded, we must do it. It's not an option not to do it. We're not free to meet. The elders are meeting in, what, a week and a half to come up with, let's, let's add some buzz to the service. Let's add something new. Let's have a, 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 a joke time, maybe, or, a, or a, you know, whatever. We're not free to do that. We're only to do what is clearly prescribed in the Word of God. R.C. Sproul said, to worship God in truth is to worship Him as He commands. Okay? Now, you saw Steve, let's just review Steve's job, how well he did, right? Now, the announcements, is that part of our worship? No. That's why we have a call to worship that clearly marks that, that now The announcements have been made. Now we need help to come and to worship the Lord. Bless the Lord at all times. Whatever the the call to worship is, it's a call to, we are going to engage in a very weighty activity and to worship a holy God. And we want to do it rightly. So then that follows with an invocation. We realize how weak we are, how we need the Lord's help. And so usually the worship leader will pray for help. Sometimes You'll sing a song first of rejoicing that we're coming into the Lord's presence and then pray. There's order, you can, you can do it however. But singing is a part of worship, right? We're, we're, why do we sing? We just like to hear each other's voices. We like to see Aaron on guitar. But we're, we sing because we're commanded to sing. It's part of the regular principle, right? And, and so, actually, since we're commanded to, do you realize if you just say, I can't really carry a tune, I'm just going to stand there. You're disobeying God. We are commanded to sing. Yeah, but you, under, you don't understand, I can't sing in tune. That's okay. We'll sing all the louder and drown you out. <laughs> but at least God sees your heart, right? Actually, the, you, the, the church has always sang. That, Charlie did a good job explaining uh, the Exodus 15, but there's the people of God. 400 years in slavery. They see their enemies wiped out and they can't help but to sing and give God praise and declare His faithfulness. You got the Psalms of Ascent, right? At each of the feasts as they would go up to Jerusalem, they would sing these Psalms together. Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So we have Scripture readings from both the Old and New Testament, as you know. Um, We have several 
portions of prayer. Some churches only will have one prayer, but typically there's a pastoral prayer. But we pray to begin. We have a pastoral prayer. We pray before the preaching of the Word. Oftentimes at the end of the preaching of the Word, sometimes near the end of the service, we should be a praying church. It, it, it expresses our dependence upon God. And then, of course, the preaching of the Word of God. This has the central place. As we said, before the Reformation, the pulpit got shoved off to the side and they had an altar, right? It was just all about the sacrifices. But with the Reformation, it's no, the Word of God needs to be primary. It needs to be central. And we give a large portion of the service to that. That's where we hear from the voice of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, I'm not the exact word or the voice of Christ, right? But to the degree that I faithfully seek to expound his word, which is inspired, that's how we hear the voice of God. And then ordinances. Today, we will have the Lord's Supper together. So we're commanded to baptize. We're commanded to um, observe the Lord's Supper. And then the benediction, the blessing. As we would go, we've been fed, we have sung, we've heard from God, and we, now we receive God's blessing. Now, there should be something to be said about the distinction between benedictions and doxologies. When we came to the end of our prayer meeting, we actually sung the doxology. Now, have you ever thought about what the difference might be? A doxology is 100% Godward giving praise to him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? But a benediction has more the idea of pronouncing a blessing upon the people. Now you know that distinction. Well, let's unpack the text. God has made, this is my third sub-point already, God has made peace with us through the work of Christ. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. There's several names for God, right? There's the the God of glory, the God of hope, the God of comfort, the God of all grace, the God of heaven, the God of Israel, very common, um, the God, and then also the God of peace. He is the author and the giver of peace. Or think of it this way, he's the very source of peace. We have chaos in this world. It's only through God where we receive peace. He's the source of peace, but then he produces peace within us. He's, he's the fountain of peace, but he produces peace within each one of us who have been reconciled to him, if you're in Christ, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace, right? Paul in Romans, two places, uh, chapter 15 and 16. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. This world lacks peace, doesn't it? In fact, for thousands of years, man has tried to bring in some type of utopia, some type of, of, of peace that would, that would make the chaos disappear. And especially in the last few hundred years, you, you have humanity trying to, as it were, bring heaven to earth. You've got the whole enlightenment period, right? You've got democracies, communism, fascism, secular humanism, all of these types of things. And yet, look at the chaos that remains in the world. Even the last few years have become very chaotic with the onset of COVID-19 and all of the changes that have rapidly happened in our 
country and really around the world, but especially in our country, big dollars funding God-dishonoring agendas. Can we say it like that? Um, You've got the whole idea of these worldviews wanting to be pressed of, of critical race theory that will deconstruct the next generation. That's the goal behind it is to completely weaken our country. You got the whole social justice movement, which totally just throws away the idea of justice in God's word and redefines it. These things bring chaos, and you see the division that has arisen in our country. God is a God of peace. You look at the Russia Ukraine situation, there's chaos everywhere. But we don't have to hope that maybe I won't receive peace. We don't have to guess that God will respond to us in any other way besides peace if we are in Christ. Islam and some of the other religions, right? God's peace is something that you hope for, but you can't bank your hope on it, right? You don't have any guarantee that you're going to receive that peace. You cannot be sure that this peace will ever come in Islam and other religions. And the reason is why. Because they, they've, they've, they've taken Christ out of their model. Oh, they, Jesus lived. But is he really the Savior that satisfied God's wrath? No, they would say no. God made peace with us who are in Christ, right? I'm talking about Christians because of the work of Christ. And Colossians um, makes it really clear and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It's the work of Christ that brings peace to us. We are now reconciled with God. We were wicked, vile enemies of God. And if you don't think that describes you before you came to Christ, you need to go back and understand the gospel a little better. We were all wicked and vile. We went about our own ways before God brought about this beautiful reconciliation. He goes on, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, he still reconciled us by the blood of his cross. This glorious reconciliation came by his effectual work on the cross. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love to study church history and under the reign of Bloody Mary in the mid-1500s. You'll remember, I think it's 120 profound theologians that she had burned at the stake. And the account of Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, in 1555, he was burned at the stake for his witness for Christ. On the night before his execution, his brother offered to remain with him in the prison chamber to be of assistance and to bring comfort and to assist in bringing peace. But Ridley declined the offer and replied that he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as ever as he did in his life because he knew the peace of God and could rest in the strength of the everlasting arms of his God. And so shall we so can we. If we've been reconciled to God, we know this peace that surpasses all understanding. Second application here is God wants us to be at peace with one another, right? Remember I said all the chaos in the world and the division that's all carefully crafted to divide us, right? But 
he wants us to be at peace with each other as well. In fact, back in chapter 12 and verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He made it clear that that's something that we should do. So, since we have a God of peace, and since we're told to pursue peace, that means to hunt down and chase after, by the way, doesn't mean, okay, no, it's hunt down, it's to go, pursue it, right? Pursue peace. We should be diligent to walk in harmony with one another. We should have our our, our Christian antennas up when we, when we hear of disunity and gossip and slander and that kind of thing. That does not achieve God's agenda of unity and peace. Amen? Fourth sub-point, uh, he brought up from the dead this great shepherd of the sheep. The author, I think, has uh, a text in Isaiah 63. You probably see it in your marginal note. Uh, Isaiah 63 and verse 11 then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where he, where he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd's flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? You see, under the old covenant, Moses functioned as a shepherd of God's sheep, according to this text, right? And he, he, he brought up together with Israel out of the Red Sea, Right, And that was symbolizing death, passing through the Red Sea, and, and kind of a resurrection, a deliverance right? That, that we refer back to. In fact, the verb that he uses here, brought up, um, literally means to lead up from a lower place to a higher place. And it carries the idea of resurrection. We have, uh, this is the only mention, by the way, of the resurrection of Christ in the entire letter, um, but it is a clear uh, mention of it. This word for brought up here, uh, it, it's, it, it's used in different ways. Um, he mentioned it back, and actually Paul mentions it. Who, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. That's the same word that's used there. And so he's emphasizing the resurrection of Christ. That also distinguishes Jesus from all the other high priests because he was dead, he was buried, he rose again, and he is a high priest that lives forever. The writer emphasized back in chapter 7 that these high priests, they keep dying off, dying off, dying off, but this one lives forever and can be trusted forever. In the Old Testament, the, the Word expresses a powerful work of God leading the people out through his redemptive actions, uh, like we see. Uh, Peter O'Brien says this, God's intervention in leading the people out of Egypt prefigured the decisive action of raising Jesus from the dead. Moreover, this action of God anticipates the way he will bring many sons to glory. Chapter 2 and verse 10. Isn't that beautiful? You go, that's why it, you, know, you say, oh... Do I have to study the book of Exodus? Do I have to read the book of Exodus? When you begin to connect these dots of, of how the deliverance of the old covenant people is, is beautifully fulfilled in the new covenant, that, that should excite you. <laughs> not, 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 not to make you think that, oh, this is boring. Well, this great shepherd of the sheep, uh, sheep lack a sense of direction, right? And they can kind of get wayward. And we are prone to wonder as the hymn says, and, and we desperately need someone to guide us. 
Actually, in the ancient Near East, uh, the term for shepherd was a metaphor for leadership. And Moses, as a shepherd who cared for the people under the rule of Yahweh, Jesus himself told that one parable, remember, that if one goes astray and the 99 remain, the good shepherd will go after them, right? It's in Luke 15. We read from John 10 that he is the good shepherd. And Peter, chapter 2 and verse 25, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Later at the end of that book, which we looked at just last week, um, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then our text uses the great shepherd. So you've got all these metaphors, the good shepherd, the, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Charles Spurgeon put it like this to kind of unite these things in our mind. He is not the great shepherd when he dies. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd when he is brought up again from the dead. In resurrection, you perceive his greatness. He lies in the grave slumbering. He is the good shepherd then, having laid down his life for the sheep, Life appears again in him, the stone is rolled away, the watchman is seized with terror, and he comes out as the risen one, no more dying. Now he is the great shepherd. He made a covenant on our behalf and stood for us before the living God. The good shepherd, what, how did Jesus say it? Lays down his life. What Spurgeon is saying, he's the great shepherd now that he's risen and lives forever. Second half of verse 20, God has kept his promise, the new covenant. And first of all, we look here at through the blood of the eternal covenant. So the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, and then through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. In Ezekiel 37, 26, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. That's pointing to the new covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's a binding agreement, right? Often between two or more parties. It's a, it's a binding agreement. We're familiar with the marriage covenant, right? Most of us, some soon, some <laughs> someday, hopefully. Um, but we're familiar with that idea. In chapter 8, he set forth all the benefits of the new covenant. You remember digging from Jeremiah 31, pulling out all of these gemstones, all of these rich truths that in the new covenant there's forgiveness for our sins. In the new covenant, we, we, the stony hearts are removed and we're, we're given a new heart with new affections. We will be sanctified. We have fellowship with God forever. I will be their God and they will be my people, my prized possession of which I want to have fellowship with. Zechariah 9, verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And even Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we'll hear shortly, um, he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So the writer has used the word blood several times throughout this book. In fact, did you know this is 
a book saturated with blood. (laughs) The book of Hebrews is saturated with blood. The word blood points to his sacrificial death. Hebrews 9.12, just to read a couple here. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? Through the blood of Jesus. We don't dare enter a holy place without the blood of Jesus. John Owen, a great Puritan, says this, Had not the will of God been fully executed, atonement made for sin, the church sanctified, the law accomplished, the threatenings satisfied, Christ could not have been brought up from the dead. It's accomplished all of that. And furthermore, the writer uses blood to point to the new covenant as well. And chapter 9 and verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Chapter 10 and verse 29, how much more severe do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. See, the writers made it clear the old covenant is done away with. It's superseded by the new covenant. Hebrews 8 and verse 13. John Calvin said, God raised up his son in such a way that his blood once shed and death has power to ratify the eternal covenant after his resurrection and brings forth its fruit as though it was always flowing. Think of the incredible love of God towards sinners towards these people that he's predestined and elected and and has bought and called in time and regenerated and breathed new life into the great love in all of its dimensions. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 3, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. And if you meditate on God's love for you and think about it and let that sink in, you begin to think that you can't exhaust it. Your mind will just keep going. Let's come to verse 21, uh, that God would equip you. God empowers you to do His good will. The benediction so far is focused on what God has done in the past in Christ. And now the verse it comes to an actual petition. The focus shifts from what from God is now petitioned for the, the lives of the congregation through Jesus. Our resurrection with Christ and being raised to newness of life when we become, how does Paul put it, new creatures in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful term? The same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead has transformed us and is continuing to transform us into newness of life. And so God is requested to equip. Equip you in every good thing to do His will. Different translations translate that word differently. It's katartizo. It means to cause to be in a condition or function well, to put in order or to restore. So 
restore you and to every good thing to do his will, to put in order in you. And it's a word that he already used back in chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, equipped by the word of God. In chapter 10 and verse 5, it's used when he's quoting from Psalm um, 40. Therefore, when he comes into the world and says, and he quotes, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That prepared, that's the word. And then later, of course, he says, then I have come to do thy will, O God. And so, the idea is to be fully fitted, to be fully prepared, that that you would have everything you need to do the will of God. That's a good prayer to pray for each other. He he touches on the, the heart of the mystery of God working in us His will within the human will without destroying our individual freedoms. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, and so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we're working it out. We're killing sin. We're slaying sin. We're marching forward. And and, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit but we would still be utter failures if it wasn't for what it goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you. What? I'm to work it out, but God's at work in me now. Okay, what does that do? That emboldens us to know this. And the same thing here is that we'd be equipped and prepared to do every good thing to do His will. We're equipped, we're prepared to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Secondly, under this head, you can only do God's will and please Him through Christ. In our own strength, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, You're not going to get anywhere that's going to last very long. The will of God is clarified by relation to what pleases Him and is acceptable to Him. And this actually makes a great bookend I keep taking you back to chapter 12 and verse 28, and I'd like for you to look at it one more time in your Bible. Right before 13 begins with all the imperatives, he says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and all. Acceptable service that we'd offer to God that which is pleasing to Him. And then everything that's, that's come in between leading up to this verse, that which is pleasing in his sight. In chapter 13 and 16, a few verses up. Do not neglect to do good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He's pleased with these things. All Christians are to regard every aspect of their lives as, as worship, right? Everything we do is worship if you're a child of God. And then the doxology um, at the end here. So we have a benediction that ends with a doxology. Okay, And he says here, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because salvation is all of God's work. He deserves the glory. Does he not? He deserves the glory. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, some debate, what's the subject of the sentence? Is this referring to God, or is it the closest antecedent with Christ? Here, it doesn't matter. Christ and the Father are one, right? (laughs) They're one. So, it doesn't matter. Glory and deity belong to Christ. He's equal with the Father. And this is certainly an appropriate way um, for such to end such a glorious benediction. Remember verse 15, Through him let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of the lips to give thanks to his name. And so new covenant sacrifices we should be very free to give. And this whole idea of, as he's talking about all of the nuances, I hope you see now everything he's pulled from different chapters are all interwoven here, and it's a beautiful tapestry. And then he can't help but to end, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. It's like Paul, you know, chapters 1 to 11 of the book of Romans, and, and, and what does he say? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. A couple points of application for us. We must remain steadfast in an ever-changing world. How can we do that? God's Word doesn't change. God doesn't change. He's immutable. We can, we can, we can lean on Him. We, we, don't, we don't have to question these things. Think, remember the context. We've, uh, you're probably getting tired of hearing it, but These Christians, most likely in Rome, before A.D. 70, as Nero's persecution is beginning to heat up, we know from chapter 10 they've already joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. They were, the persecution is heating up so that their security and peace and prosperity were at risk of falling away. But they are exhorted to do the same things that we are to please God. What about us? We have a government that claims to have been you know, a Christian nation, right? But those in power right now that are actually telling us that it's okay to have federally funded gender reassignment surgeries on elementary age children. That's your government. That's the government that you live in, right? Our government is the kingdom of God. But when you have that kind of wickedness that is clearly imposing child abuse upon kids. These kids will be permanently demented forever. We have a government that wants to take our religious freedoms away, right? We saw all that through COVID as well. You see, we live in a state that is about to, that has several laws on the books right now that will make it legal to kill children after they are born. Um, abortion tourism in which the state of California will pay to have somebody maybe in a stricter state like Mississippi to fly in, put them in a hotel, give them an abortion, and fly them back. Okay, There's these kind of bills that are assembly bills right now that are being discussed. That's the culture we live in. So can I say it again? We've got to remain steadfast, right? We can't cave in to any of this. And though you've got Soros and other big money funding wicked policies, we have to stand face fast. Our God does not change. We've got a government that wants to reach into your savings account and take your money by printing all this money, and now your dollar is about this small. It's about monopoly size right now. It used to be big. It used to buy a lot more. Okay, this, this is wickedness, right? Thank God. 
This world is not our home. Thank God that we are, as it says here, for we do not have a lasting, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Let us set our sights on that city. Let us march forward to that city because we know the king of that city and we know the Christ that is there. We must remain strong in the strength of his might, standing on the word of God. There's that hymn, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. That's what we want in the midst of chaos. We just want to rest. Sometimes we just want to go home to glory, to be taken away out of this world. But brethren, he's called us here for a purpose, right? And that's to share the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with such a lost and dying world. May he bring revival. May he bring revival yet again to this land. We don't deserve it. We deserve God's judgment. But may, in wrath, may he remember mercy and once again breathe upon this land. Let us not neglect approaching the throne of grace that we can find help in time of need. Even when we're most discouraged with various issues in our lives and trials in our lives that we boldly approach the throne of grace. Also, I think there's something to be said here about benedictions are not just meant for religious uh, services, right? Church services, but pronouncing a blessing upon others. Mutual encouragement. Go back and listen to the Mark Chansky sermons from our conference we did last a year ago, February, on, on encouragement. Uh, you, you see this modeled in Boaz, righteous Boaz. Here he comes. He, he owns many fields. Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he comes out to the reapers who are reaping. Boaz, or, uh, Ruth is there. And what does he say? May the Lord be with you. And the reapers unite their hearts and, and say, may the Lord be with you as well. Pronouncing a blessing. Encouraging one another. You, uh, the application is, is, is obvious, right? This should begin in the home. Mutual encouragement between husband and wife, right? Encouraging our children, building them up, not putting them down, but building them up. And that spreads right into the church as well, right? We encourage one another. And, and, and what that means is we put to death the critical spirit. We put to death the critical spirit that may maybe didn't like the way Aaron was strumming or didn't like, I wish we'd sing more choruses and not hymns or whatever. Put that aside, <laughs> right? It's only distracting you from worshiping him. See, in true Christians, you can see something of Jesus in each one of them and give them a word of encouragement. If you're here today and you're unsaved, I have one question for you. When will you experience this amazing grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Can you say that? Or, or can, can you say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, my grace, my fears relieved." As we sang just recently, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, all this blood, this book is soaked with blood, and we clothe ourselves with blood. We clothe ourselves with uh, garments of salvation, Isaiah 51, with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus made atonement for sinners, for every single one who 
would repent and come to him. So I invite you, come to Jesus. He's a glorious Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word. Thank you that we can be mindful of really the meaning behind this benediction that we hear often. May we think about that peace that surpasses understanding, that peace that comes from you, the fountain of all peace, and you've given us peace and reconciled us to you by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, even as we come to the Lord's table now, help us to set our thoughts right and uh, to take in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite Aaron up now.